kept in prayer. Um, I thought maybe we'd just take one second to do a little bit of housekeeping stuff. As you know, we had a little break here, and uh, we're now getting back in the swing of our, I guess our second semester, if you want to call it. I have in my hand the outline for the class to follow today, and it is going to be um, with Dr. Guy and Zev Rosenberg. Uh, we start April 15th, and it goes, uh, I, don't, I can't remember the exact number of weeks, to the June 17th. And they have entitled this, The View from the Mountain into Our Present Time. Now, guess what? It's the Sermon on the Mount. And what I think is so cool about it is, I don't know if you know this, but I send all the notes to Dr. Guy and, and, and Debbie and, and Zev. I send them all of our stuff from each class. And they have... Uh, tied this all together with some of our creeds and the, and the Boston Declaration. So uh, as we started with Pastor Wallace and, and, and went through um, our creeds, we're going to end in tying them into the Sermon on the Mount from their viewpoint. And I think it's, it, the outline is here if anybody wants to see it, but you'll get it next week. It's an awesome course. And then I have another special treat. If you remember, I started this... Uh, fall off and I said we have people who want to teach and I've never had such an easy fall to plan because so many people wanted to teach. Mike Wallace uh, notified me by email the other day we are going to have something we've never had with Westminster. We're going to have an August offering. A special treat. Uh, We're going to have the sanctuary and he's going to take us through some of the mosaics and the stained glass uh, windows of our sanctuary so we will have August offerings so don't think you're going on vacation this year no vacations you have to go yeah going we'll go anytime but don't miss August Westminster offering thank you Great. good morning everybody uh, let us pray dear God thank you for bringing us together this morning we're thankful for Uri and Julie's presence with us today, Geely's presence with us today, and their gift of sharing. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Now, I've mangled her name the first time out. Geely, 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 and Uri. Um, They're from Israel. They are the emissaries to the Akron-Canton area this year. So um, we've got a little bit of interesting introduction for the two of them. As a teenager, Uri was a youth counselor and counselor trainer in the Hanawar Halved Zionist left-wing youth movement. He served for four years in an intelligence military unit for the Israeli Defense Force, after which he started his Bachelor of Science in Physics at the Technion in Haifa. After a year and a lot of soul-searching, he came to the conclusion that his passion is education and he started a BA in Education and Political Science at Tel Aviv University, which he recently finished with honors. In his spare time, he volunteers with at-risk children and children with special needs. Uri loves to spend his spare time playing video and board games and hiking all around Israel and the world. He also enjoys cooking. Gili was also a youth counselor in the Hanawar Halved organization and served for three years in a completely different military intelligence unit, volunteering for an additional year of service. And I guess both of them having been in intelligence, they can't tell us anything about it or they would have to kill us. Um, She studied education and psychology at Tel Aviv University, which she has since graduated from. In her spare time, Geely enjoys escape rooms and mental challenges, reading, and is a big fan of theater. She spends time volunteering with families from low economic background and with the LATET program for promoting teens to social action. Uri and Geely came to our area late last summer. They host fascinating programs about Israel at Temple Israel. Welcome. Remind me where are you from? (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm sure you have noticed, uh, specifically me, I have an Israeli accent, meaning you sometimes may not understand what I'm saying due to my accent or English and so on. So please, if you have any questions, uh, stop us. <laughs> well, I'm going to try to talk as clearly as I can. <laughs> I promise you it's better than it's been in August. <laughs> um, so, and if you have any questions about the things we're talking about, we're going to talk about Israel from our perspective, we're going to talk about our families, and through it we're going to talk about Israel as a country, as a state. So if you have any questions about that, please stop us too. We sometimes assume some things are international and everyone knows it, and then as it turns out, it doesn't. Only Israelis know it. So please, again, stop us, raise your hand if you have any questions about anything. If there's anything that we say that you want us to elaborate on or talk more in depth, we'd be happy to do that as well. Anything that you want to discuss that we say in this presentation, you want to hear more about, or things that we don't talk about that you want to hear, that you've heard, any issues that um, come up that you've read about and you want us to open, this is a great opportunity to do so and we'll be very happy. Okay, so let's start. Okay. So the, qu the first question we usually get is, what are you doing here? Why did you come all the way from Israel? And the answer is, of course, the snow. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we accept fake laughter, too. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Pity laughs. Um, so every year, around 350 shlichim, which is the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for emissaries or messengers, come to uh, Jewish communities all around the world. Around 200 of them come to the United States and Canada. And the um, um, meaning behind it, the reason why we're coming, is to strengthen, to Strength. make the connection between Israel and the Jewish communities stronger in both ways. So it first of all, in, in order to bring Israel through our point of view to the Jewish communities, and afterwards bring the point of view of the Jewish communities back to Israel. This is why it's a temporary uh, program. We come for a year or two and then go back. So as you can see, we have all any, every dot is a shaliach, which is a messenger, uh, male or female, uh, all around the United States. And to focus a bit in our area, I bet you can recognize Canton. So this is us. This is why we are here. Um, Another part of our uh, job or what we're doing here is to talk with the non-Jewish community. We recognize that not everyone is, um, knows Israel beyond uh, what you see in the news. And what you see in the news is mostly what gives traffic and what's more, more interesting and not necessarily what's true, what's going on. So this is our option to show our Israel from our point of view. It is impo important to say that these are our own opinions. We don't represent the Israeli government. We don't represent any formal body. That's why it will be, it won't be the official um, viewpoint. What? The official viewpoint of Israel, or maybe not what you see in the news. This is our own opinions, and sometimes we won't agree with what our country does. Sometimes we won't agree wi with each other. But you get. Uh, non-objective opinion. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about this um, just moment is that you don't see French emissaries coming and talking about France, for example. It's something that's very unique that Israel sends emissaries to come and speak about itself. And it comes from several reasons. One of them, as Gilly stated, is to keep this connection alive as a living bridge. It's to m make Israel more well-known and the idea of Israel something to be more meaningful and layered and deep. And it's also part of our feeling of mutual responsibility over the world, Israel, and we'll get to that later, really has this feeling where it is responsible for being part of the world and being, being a meaningful part of the world. And it's part of us being here and having a chance to both share us and learn and bring it back to Israel. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
you had a question as well? So the way it works is there's a body called the Jewish Agency for Israel. It was founded before the land of Israel became a state. And the, um, its main goal in the early years was to get Jews to come to the land of Israel. We wanted people to immigrate to Israel. But um, these years, it has a lot, um, it just shifted its focus to work with communities abroad and to share Israel and to grow Israel through this sharing. And it's the um, body that connects us to the communities. The Jewish communities pay for the vast majority of us coming here. They pay for our housing and our insurance and our flights and so forth. The Jewish agency supports them somewhat. Um, and that's how we have a chance to come here and do this. Any other questions about the Shlichut program, about the emissary program? Yes. So you're actually jumping a lot of ahead, which is wonderful. Uh, over 50% of Israel's population immigrated to Israel. But the numbers, the, the percentages keep shifting as time goes by, obviously, because you have more and more Israeli borns. But we'll see in a slide just a minute how many people immigrated to Israel and how it's really affected the Israeli society and how it looks today. Okay, so I guess we'll start. Um, and to be, we want to talk about a lot of things today, but I guess we'll start at the beginning of Israel as a state, not the beginning of Jewish history. And we'll talk about the UN partition plan of 1947. Um, Post-World War II, after the horrors of the Holocaust, uh, many Jews immigrated en masse to Israel and wanted to found a Jewish homeland in that area where our forefathers lived. Jewish immigration has really picked up since the 18th century. And by 1947, from around 1,800 Jews that were living there during the Middle Ages and the 17th century, we were up to 600,000 Jews um, in this area. And there was a really big push towards an Israeli state, a state for the Jewish people to be a safe haven for them after the horrors that they've suffered in the Second World War. And there was a lot of pressure um, put on the world from the countries who've helped liberate the camps and see just what we've been through. And this area was under a lot of civil unrest. There were Jews living here, there were Arabs living here. We weren't necessarily getting along all the time. Both of us wanted to live here. It was under the British mandate at that time who were supposed to help um, create states for these people. And history will tell if they were doing a good job or not. But in the end, in 1947, the United Nations decided to step in and say that it's time to solve this and find found these states. And uh, they send a committee here to Israel to talk with the locals and see what they should do. And they decide to draw a map. They take this area and they divide it into two. You have two colors. There's dark yellow and light yellow. Um, the dark yellow sh um, was their opinion that what should be a Jewish state. And the light yellow would be an Arab state with Jerusalem being in white and being an international zone. This is the map that they proposed, it was based on where settlements were, mostly. So most Jews were either living in this area or over here, and most Arabs were living here in this area. So they did it by population. Now, what are your opinions on this map? It doesn't look like it is today. That's true. Um, why not? Wonderful. Anyone else has an opinion? That's true as well. Mm -hmm. So this map has all of issues. For example, if you live here and you want to go here, you can't cross through to a different country. You have to go all around. Or the fact that um, some areas are only connected by this small area, that they're very thin and hard to protect, that um, they're very separated and isolated. Um, most of this is desert, so it's hard to have agriculture there, for example. And the fact that Jerusalem is international and everyone wants it and nobody gets it. So uh, it's, there, it's a problematic map, but it is a map. It's the first time an official body comes and draws lines in the sand and says, this will be a Jewish state. And they vote on this map. 
and it passes. The UN resolution passes um, in a majority of 33 votes to 13, and there were 33 for it, 13 against, and 20 abstained, and it passes, and the Jewish population is very happy with this. They're not happy with the map. As we said, it's not a great map, but yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. That is true. The word Palestinian um, comes from the Philistines, which were people that were living here during the like biblical times, and that's where it comes from. The first origin of this words come from a Roman emperor that came here during the third century and decided to call this area based on that group, and many Arab people who came and migrated here during the Ottoman Empire and during the Middle Ages, who are completely different people, um, are the Palestinian, Palestinians that we know today. The word Palestinian used to mean everyone who lived in this area of Palestine, which was much larger than just the land of Israel, and it started meaning the Arab people who lived or lived in the past in this specific area only after 1948. So there's a large issue with terminology, but We'll get to that in a different lecture. Um, so um, the Jewish population living in this area were not happy with the map, but they were happy with the fact that we were offered a state, and they took it. They said, okay, we're not happy with this, but we'll take what we get. And the Arabs who were living here were unhappy with this and wouldn't accept it, and this sparked a civil war, which became the Israeli War of Independence. Um, there was a lot of infighting, and in the end, um, several of our neighboring countries, including Egypt and Jordan and Iraq and Syria and Lebanon decided to join the war and stop Israel from becoming a state and crushing it before it exists. But happily, we won that war and we're still there today. And Israel has a long history of conflict with its neighbors, um, with the Arab population, and our neighborhood isn't always very friendly to us. But all you hear about on the news when you hear about Israel these days is conflict and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and terrorism and danger and it's a lot to digest, and um, conflict is a real part of our lives. It really is, and something that you feel. But Israel feels very safe when you get there, and it's something that is really shocking to many people. You walk the streets, and you don't feel like you're scared to be there, even in places where there's contention. And we really feel that talking about Israel through this conflict is the wrong way of doing things. There is so much more to Israel and its land and its people and its history than just conflict. Um, and there's a lot more to share. And if we um, take this quote by President Obama, um, given as a eulogy to our um, former president, um, Shimon Peres, um, he says this at his funeral. Shimon's story, the story of Israel, the experience of the Jewish people, I believe it is universal. It's the story of a people who over so many centuries in the wilderness never gave up on that basic human longing to return home. It's the story of the people who suffered the boot of oppression and the shutting of the gas chamber's doors and yet never gave up on the belief of goodness. And this quote we feel is very powerful and very telling in many ways. Um, Shimon Peres was a wonderful president who suffered many hardships in his life and really never stopped believing that we can achieve peace, that we can make Israel a better place. And this quote is very interesting because we f felt very connected to it and even though Every, per, every Israeli story is different, and their family's from a different place, and they've lived a different life. It, there's really this sense of connection, and we thought that the best way to talk about Israel is through this quote, through the story of people who came and lived in Israel, and what they've been through, and how it is, growing, how it is like growing up in Israel, and what we go through. And we want to talk about Israel today through our family's story, and what they've been through, and how we got to where we are today. So, we're going to do that now. Um, we're gonna start with my family story. So these are my grandparents. This is um, Rachel and Dov Hershkovitz. They're both from Czechoslovakia, from the Czech Republic. Um, they were born, she was born in Prague and he was born in a small village in the Karpaty Mountains just nearby. And they were, are both Holocaust survivors. Um, they were there um, when Nazi Germany occupied the Czech Republic and they lost most of their families in the Holocaust. They've been through many, many hardships uh, my father, my grandfather was sent um, to, um, I don't remember what it is when he translated it to uh, Terezin, Terezin ghetto, 
and then he was sent to Auschwitz, uh, where he lost the vast majority of his family. Um, he had 11 siblings, and only one of them survived. He and one of his siblings survived the Holocaust, so a very, very large family. Almost nobody survived. He was a youth guide trying to get youth to Israel back when it was illegal to get them, and um, he was caught and sent to um, the concentration camps, and he almost died many, many times. Um, but how somehow they managed to survive, and they actually got married inside Terezin um, ghetto. And it's an amazing story because the horrors of the Holocaust are well documented, and people have suffered so much. It is so hard to keep an image of a man in yourself throughout these hardships when you are struggling for food, struggling for shelter, for warmth. And deciding to get married inside of all this is amazing. And um, they got married inside the ghetto, and we still have the Ketubah, the Jewish Certificate of Marriage, which was handwritten by a rabbi inside the ghetto. It's one of the only kind of documents that has survived to this day. It's a handwritten Ketubah from the Holocaust. And it's an, a family artifact that we donated to Yad Vashem um, Memorial, um, Holocaust Memorial Museum so that other people can enjoy it as well. It's uh, an amazing story of people who decide that life is important and it's worth struggling to live and building a future. And they managed to come uh, to survive the Holocaust and um, do Aliyah, to immigrate to Israel. And they immigrate and live in a small form of um, settlement back at that time that were called a kibbutz. A kibbutz is a very unique form of settlement to Israel and was very well known at the time, 70 years ago. It's a form of communal living where you, it's based on agriculture. Everyone works the land and grows cattle. And everything that you make is goes to a shared uh, community and it decides how to hand out whatever they have to the people as they need it. So you have a mutual dining hall. Everyone eats together and the kids are raised together and everyone works together to make this work. And it really fit Israel at the time, which was a very poor, newly founded state. Um, it didn't have any... Uh, infrastructure, few roads, few cities. We still had swamps that needed to be dried so people could live in the area. And it really worked. And people were very, very poor at the time. They were so poor that because my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, the kibbutz decided to give them extra rations so they could be healthy again and be strong. And they got an extra ounce of butter a week. That's the extra rations that they could get because nothing else was there to be given. And at some point, the kibbutz decides that if it wants to feed everyone, they have to start raising uh, pigs um, so people could eat. Pigs are easy to raise, they grow fast, they make a lot of food, but um, Jewish law states that we're not allowed to eat pork. And my grandparents decided that they respect that this, the kibbutz's decision, but they didn't survive the Holocaust to stop um, following Jewish law and eat pork in the land of Israel. And they moved from the kibbutz to a settlement that later becomes Ashkelon, which is a larger city in Israel today. That's how um, they, ma they got to Israel. On my mother's side, we have history spanning from the 18th century where my family decides to move from Yemen to the land of Israel and um, settle there. Under, at the time, it was under um, Ottoman rule, the Ottoman Empire, the Turks of today. And um, people were very poor that back then. The area wasn't very well kept. And they decide to move to Egypt because people are faring better there. And they move to Egypt. And um, after the state of Israel is founded, my grandfather decides that, okay, there's a state for the Jews now, so it's time to move to Israel. And he leaves his whole family behind. They're still in Egypt to this day. And moved by himself to Israel, he moves to Tel Aviv, and that's where he meets my grandmother. And that's where my family comes from. And Israel is, in many um, regards, very similar to the United States, as in... It's a land of immigrants. We have people coming from all over, and it's really, um, in words which aren't ours, a home for the homeless people. Um, so many Jews um, decide to immigrate to Israel, whether they were displaced or um, forced to leave their homes um, due to persecution, or they decide to come to Israel because it's a better place to live, or they come to Israel because they believe in a Jewish state. And since Israel was founded in 1948, we have over two million people who come to Israel. So we have almost 100,000 from Ethiopia, and we have half a million from Eastern Europe and from Arab countries and from the Soviet Union in 1990. So there's a lot, a lot of people are coming. And if you remember the number I gave before, about 600,000 Jews who were here around 1948, you can really see how this really, really impacted the population today. 
Israel's population today is about 8 million people. So even in today's number, this is huge. It's over a quarter of Israel's population have immigrated to Israel. Um, and it really affected um, the way we view Judaism, the way it is celebrated, and just the way the Israeli society is, um, is seen today. It's just so varied and really interesting. Um, a really interesting story that we ran into just a few years ago is the story of Gili's best friend. Okay. Okay, so um, Gili's best friend, um, her name is Rita, and her family came from the Soviet Union, and they moved um, to Israel around the 1990s. And when they moved here, um, they celebrated, the Russian Jews celebrated a national holiday called Novigod. Uh, it's a really interesting holiday. Back um, in Russia under communist rule, there w was no religion. The communism, um, communism doesn't believe in religion. You can't have religion and a communist rule at the same time. So no one was allowed to practice the religion. You couldn't practice Jewish holidays, you couldn't practice Christian holidays, nothing. You only had the government. But some things are hard to stop doing because people are so used to doing them. So what the government did at that time, they took Christmas, which was a very big holiday, and they turned it from a religious holiday into a national holiday. They changed the name from Christmas to Navigad, and they took all the Christian elements out of it, but it became a national holiday that you celebrate the new year. You still have a Christmas tree, and you get presents, and there's a great grandfather winter, but anything that has to do with Christianity was taken out of it, and it became a national holiday that everyone celebrated, Jews including. So when um, Rita's family came to Israel, um, around December, they would put out a Christmas tree with lights and with presents. And people that were in Israel were like, well, are you Jews or are you Christian? This is Christmas. And it took us a while to figure out that it's not Christmas. It's a holiday that is theirs and they celebrate it and it's part of their tradition. And it took time to accept it. And what's beautiful to see is that today, if you walk around Israel around December, you have Novigod parties that people are invited to and people embrace and celebrate and accept as part of Jewish heritage and culture as well because such a big part of the population, it's part of their culture. It's the same thing with the Mimuna, which is you celebrate the, on the day after Passover, which is uh, Yemenite in a Moroccan tradition, and it's the same thing with Ethiopian Sig, which is another holiday that they celebrate and brought with them. So you really have this mix of cultures and histories that it, is, uh, Israel serves as a melting pot for, so people can enjoy their Judaism and see it as something diverse. That is really similar to the United States and how people came here to be American but brought everything with them and have this interesting mix of cultures. Um, so that's a little bit about my, my background, how we got here. Uh, my family today were four people. It's uh, myself, my father Israel, my sister Tamar, and my mother, Avital. And this is a picture of us hiking. One of the things that we really love doing is hike around Israel, around the world. Uh, we wake up before dawn and go hiking, and everyone calls us crazy, but that's what we do. Um, and it's a, an opportunity to show a little bit about Israel. Um, does anyone know how big Israel is, size-wise? Yeah, about the size of New Jersey. It's kind of small. Um, you can cross it from top to bottom in about six hours, and from side to side in an hour and a half, if you're lucky with traffic in some places. So it's really, really small. Um, but you get so many interesting landscapes in such a small place. So it's not just varied in population, it's also varied in landscape. So these are all images from Israel, and it's crazy to see just what you get in such a small place. So for example, you have this one. Does anyone know where, where this is? Well done. Uh, so this is the Dead Sea. Um, it's the lowest place on Earth you can stand. It is so salty that you just float in the water. Nothing grows there because it's so salty. It's really cool. You have really nice mud baths. You really should go in if you have any cuts or bruises because it really stings. Uh, but it's a great place for a vacation. And you also have waterfalls and lakes, and you have a huge desert. Uh, Israel is home to a unique um, geological um, phenomenon called machtesh. It's a Hebrew word that hasn't been translated because it only exists in Israel. Um, you have um, craters that were made by asteroids hitting Earth, and this is a naturally occurring crater that has nothing to do with asteroids. It has the exact same shape, but it happens because of difference in hardness between layers of rock, and it's really, really cool. It's the only place on, um, on Earth that has them. We have three. Um, we have agriculture and large fields, and um, it's a big developed place with cities and, light, uh, and highways. Um, many pe times people ask us, um, how often do we feed our camel? So 
the truth is most of us don't own a camel and we take cars to work. It's less exciting, I know, uh, but more comfortable. Um, and Israel, <laughs> uh, we uh, have a, a very large seashore because as you've seen, Israel is on the Mediterranean Sea. So we get to enjoy that a lot. Um, and we also have a bit of snow, which is interesting. You often picture Israel as something that is very hot, and that's true, where we live, it doesn't get any colder than 50 during winter, and it gets as hot as 110 for four months at a row. So it gets really hot, but we do get a little bit of snow. We have um, one mountain that gets a lot of snow during winter, and you can go ski there, and Jerusalem gets some snow as well. But it's really cool to see that you can get so many different landscapes and so much to see and experience in such a small place. So. Um, so thank you for the <laughs> everything. Um, <laughs> so that yes, yes. Thank you. Great question. So after his Uri story, mine is a bit less complicated. Uh, these are my grandparents. It's the bo It's the same people in both of the pictures. The reason I chose these photos is because on the left side you can see a camel so there are camels on Israel is mostly for tourists who want to experience this uh, type of uh, riding it's very bumpy. So it's nice it's very bumpy it's <laughs> not that comfortable uh, but it's a nice experience so those these are my grandparents from my mother's side uh, the right photo was taken last year and on a birthday uh, my family came from Poland. Uh, it immigrated to Israel before the, between the first and the second world wars, when uh, everything started to heat up again and different laws uh, were made against Jewish people. Slowly, the living in Europe has become more and more hard. Uh, Jews couldn't go into stores. It, uh, they put on signs: Jews and dogs cannot get inside. So my family kind of maybe foreseen what's happening and immigrated to the land of Israel before it became a state. <coughs> so this is a photo of Tel Aviv taken last year. This is where you laugh. Thank you. <laughs> this is a photo of Tel Aviv taken 100 years ago. Uh, around where, when my family, just before my family immigrated to Tel Aviv, when, we, when I tell this story, so many people ask me, just wait a minute, you say Tel Aviv celebrated its 100th birthday a few years ago, but Israel is going to be 70 this April? How does it, what's going on in there? So as Uri told you, uh, there were Jewish settlements in the land of Israel before Israel was born, and Tel Aviv is considered to be one of the first cities to become in Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is how it looks like. Uh, around 100 years ago with very short uh, buildings, there's a few stories high, a lot of traffic, and this is how it looks today. Um, we have uh, huge buildings, it's a very western city. Uh, often we Israelis say it's the Israeli New York. Uh, I'm sure most of you won't agree, but it's one of the biggest cities in Israel. It's very uh, big, popular, western, never slips. <coughs> And the reason I chose the second photo is because last year Tel Aviv has been declared as the friendliest city for vegans. So you can sense the vibes of this city. This is a typically Israeli breakfast. We always say that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. It was quite a shock for us to come here and realize how different the food is and how different breakfast is. For us, just the thought of eating meat for breakfast is like... So weird. You know, meat is for lunch and for dinner, and that's it. And in breakfast, we usually eat different type of omelets with cheese and vegetables and salads and uh, different kind of cheese dips, soft cheese and hummus, of course, and coffee. And just the thought of, uh, for us, eating meat is so weird, probably as the thought of eating salad for breakfast for you. So this is uh, something we needed to adjust to. For example, we invited a couple for us for brunch, and we said, okay, what do you want us to make? We can make omelets, we can make pancakes. And they said, yeah, sounds good. And we look at each other, so both? You want to have both pancakes and omelets in the same uh, meal? And it was 
crazy for us, but we slowly adjust because it's easy to adjust to, to pancakes. pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a typically, thank you, uh, Israeli breakfast. Um, this is my family. You can recognize me, maybe, on the left. This is my brother, Alon, and my mother, Inat. Uh, I don't know if you recognize what we're doing. Has ever, everyone, anyone ever tried paint days or paint night? So it reaches Israel too. Um, just a quick uh, anecdote about Israeli names. And they're sometimes hard to pronounce for people who are not from Israel. But most of the younger, uh, more newer names have meaning behind them. So for example, my name means uh, my happiness. It ends with an I. Gili and Uri means my light. Uh, my brother's name is Alon, means oak. Uh, or his sister, her name is Tamar, means date. So most of the newer Israeli names have a meaning behind it, which is. Mm -hmm. And the old nice. ones are usually biblical, come from biblical origins. So for example, Uri's father's name is Israel. Very uh, mm -hmm. nice. Um, um, another huge aspect in most Israelis' life is a youth movement. As Nancy said, we both met in a youth movement called Hanor Oved, which is another very hard to say word. Uh, it's a left uh, Zionist wing uh, youth movement where you have activities twice a week and you have summer camps and hikes during the holidays and it's a very uh, popular activity in today's Israel. almost. 50%, so any, every other teenager goes to this movement, and it's a type of, uh, it's similar to the scouts in here. Mm -hmm. um, is, yes. Thank you. So I'll start with the first question, since I have the deeper accent. Uh, Israel is studying English from the third grade, and it's very important for Mandatory. It. It's mandatory, mm -hmm. and it's very important. Each parent is very uh, proud when his kids know English, because it's so important. No one knows Hebrew outside uh, of Israel, so we have to learn it in order to communicate. Yet, it is important to say that most of our English is from TV series and movies and this is where you really catch it up, but it is mandatory to learn English. Just as an example, when you go and see a movie in Israel, you go to the theater, after the age of eight, you watch movies in English with subtitles. No one goes and see a movie in Hebrew, unless you're very, very young. Unless it's an Israeli movie. Mm -hmm. So it's really something that we adopted. Facebook is in English, the internet is English. Everything that you really encounter online, which is a big part of today's life, is English, and it really is felt in Israeli society. If you go to Israel, and you try to speak Hebrew with people, they'll be really excited, and then they want to practice their English. So you can really feel it. In order to finish high school, you have to take an exam in English, both written one and verbal one. And regarding the second question, mm -hmm. the schools are run by the government. Um, you don't have, you have municipalities, which are in charge of different things, but you have an educational system, which is um, countrywide, and it is um, run by the government. They are in charge of the program and what is taught. There are very few of them. There are, but they're much less popular than in here. Israel is somewhere interesting in between. Um, in its definition of state, we see it as a welfare state. And you really feel it in things like education and healthcare, where they're both heavily, heavily subsidized by the government. Um, for example, a year in college in Israel with your books and studying fee and everything um, comes to around $2,500. So it's very cheap comparatively, and uh, healthcare is very cheap. We had uh, an emissary that was here two years ago, not here, but in the United States, and he had issue, he needed to do a root canal treatment, and it was cheaper for him to fly to Israel, get treated there, and come back than be treated here. 
It's and it's 12-hour flight from New York, so it's uh -huh. a long way. So we do those very well, um, and you can really feel it in things like youth movements, which Gilly said are a really big part of people's lives. Almost one of every two people do it. You really have this sense of communities, com uh, communal responsibility, which comes from Eastern European origins and this um, sense of, for example, the kibbutzim, the sense of connection. On the other hand, we're still uh, a capitalist country where everyone works and you know makes their money and so forth. So there's somewhere in between um, how our definition of what a state should be, and it's very interesting to see. I think another thing that really mm -hmm. contributes to our feeling as a community is mandatory enlistment. Um, each boy and girl, um, when they reach the age of 18, they must enlist to the army. Women usually serve for two years and men usually serve for three years. It's slowly adjusting and in a few years it's going to be two and a half years, both for men and for women. And these are just photos from our military service. We chose uh, very professional ones. And <laughs> um, I think the fact that almost, and we're going to talk about it in a minute, almost every everyone served in the military or served serves as uh, in a national service, serving the country and co contribut contributing to the society help us form this sense of community. Even though Israel is small, it's not that small. Mm -hmm. And it really helps you feel connected and feel proud of your country. And it's some of the reasoning why we don't have a big influx of private universities, private schools, and so forth. Yeah. Usually we are so proud in our military unit, it's kind of like uh, here with universities. So, for example, I was in a specific unit in the army, and we have an alumni uh, nonprofit organization that help people uh, later on, and it's very something really inherited in us. We're really proud of our military service. Even though her unit was worse than mine. <laughs> but uh, the and, way it is, and it is important to say that my unit was the best, and <laughs> women and men, <laughs> women and men can serve in the same positions. Around 97% of the positions are open to both genders, and we're, we will reach 100% soon. soon. Mm -hmm. um, some of the in really interesting things to think about when you think about the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, the Israeli Army. Um, one is that everyone has to enlist, almost everyone has to enlist, but people want to. It's not this foreign army that sends you overseas and you aren't connected to. It's something that you grow up expecting. It's your older brothers and sisters serving, and then it's your kids or your neighbor's kids doing so. It really creates this sense of community and camaraderie inside Israeli society. It is both a melting pot for people to come and um, meet new people and be exposed to different cultures because sometimes you live in the same neighborhood until you're 18 and then you're forced to go to the army and go through all this training and difficulties with people you've never met or wouldn't have met otherwise. So it's a chance to mingle and understand more about Israeli society. It's a shared experience that everyone has. So when you meet an Israeli abroad, it's the second question you always ask them. It's like, hi, who are you? What do you do in the army? So you always have this, like something to talk about, something in common with people. Yeah, it's something that's very, a big part of us. At first, mm -hmm. these soldiers are this uh, mature people who go defend their country, and then it's you. And then after a few years, it's your little sister, your little brother. And you look at them, like, um, we have a saying in Hebrew, the soldiers are our children, and everyone look for them. And they have, get, for example, free ride on public transportation and discounts in different restaurants because we really feel um, as one big family. People send food packages to soldiers yeah. just so they have something nice for the holidays if they're serving. Yeah, like chocolate and mm -hmm. snacks and stuff. And the second thing about the Israeli army is that you don't have to fight. So it's something that is like a common misconception that everyone who serves in the IDF is like holding a gun and like fighting someone. Uh, over 50% of manpower in the IDF is focused inward on Israel. They're soldiers who um, are serving as teachers, as teaching aides, as social workers, as museum guides, helping people in underprivileged communities, helping kids with learning disabilities, taking um, people who come to Israel for a set period of time or are, doing, are immigrating to Israel, help them integrate. So a lot of the manpower is focused on building Israeli society and making it better. 
so you can really serve and do something meaningful without fighting if that is something that you choose to do and you feel that is important. And it really makes soldiers something that's prevalent in Israel. Like you walk around and you see soldiers walking around and you feel safe because they're your kids or your brothers and sisters or people that are doing things in your community. And it's really this something that um, is a glue that but holds everything together. Mm-hmm. And towards this. But you also do really amazing things, even though you're 18. It's like you'd expect 18-year-olds to know nothing about the world and be inexperienced to do important things. But I, for example, and this is as much as I can say, I served in a satellite unit. I was working with like multi-billion machines in space and flying them. I was 18 years old. And you do these things that you should have a second degree to do. And here you are as 18 doing this. And this, you grow up feeling responsible and looking forward to this, and you get this responsibility put on your shoulders, and you take it really seriously, and you have a chance to do amazing things, and it really helps you move forward. For example, if you have a minor criminal offense in your record, and you go and you finish your army service, they delete it off your file. Um, so it's an option to have a clean, slate, a clean page to start again, mm-hmm. to really take this two, three years and uh, use them as experience for your, the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, the Israel government gives a stipend for education and for living after you finish the army and really helps soldiers go on with their lives. And if we're talking about yeah. Not a large one. Um, some people choose to um, make a career out of their army, but most people don't. You have a reserve um, unit in the um, IDF, so once you are finished with your military service, up until the age of 40 or until you have children, if you're a woman, um, they can call you for reserve duty if they need you. And the vast majority of Israel's fighting power is the reserve units. Um. That's a wonderful question. Thank you. It is important. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll start and you continue. Uh, IDF, Israel Defense Force, has 10 values, and none of them is connected to um, the enemy or connected to Palestinians. The army is called Israel Defense Force because we look at it as we need to defend our country, but we won't start a war unless we absolutely have to. Uh, none of the training is concerning to a specific other nation and so on. It's only concerned with your own uh, strength, how you handle things, how to be responsible, how to know when to say no. When you think something is uh, not right within the army, it's something that's very unique for IDF mm-hmm. that we believe in. The ten values are all values of responsibility and leadership. They're all... Um, carrying out your task and saying, um, being responsible for yourself and for your fellows and <clears throat> purity of arms and the value of human life. That is what you're taught and that is set from on high. Um, no one in basic training or throughout the army, at least not in our experiences ever, told us what we need to think about the Palestinians, about the Egyptians, about anyone else. Um, people's politics are often like very widely between people and um, I think it really depends on your experience, your personal experience as well. I want to hope that um, we will uh, achieve peace in the seeable future, and I don't think the teaching of the IDF are any hamperings to that. Uh, Sure. Um, mm? Yes. And basic training 
varies between the units. So if you're backline soldiers, you have a shorter um, basic training and larger on-job training for your job. If you're a combat soldier, you have longer basic training and so forth, whatever your role is specialized for. Um, so if that's about the army, we wanted to have a chance to talk about um, diversity of religion inside Israel through this. As you probably noticed, we kept saying most of the Israelis enlisted their army, most of the men and women at the age of 18 enlist. So this is a um, list of different minorities in Israel. Around 80% of the population in Israel are Jewish. Around 18% are uh, Muslims, Arabic, and the rest are other minorities. Some of them has to enlist, some of them does not have to enlist. Uh, it really varies. But it is important to say that the ones that do enlist are there because they have to, or they, some of them volunteer to enlist, really feel part of the community. Mm -hmm. Some of the reason why non-Jewish people doesn't have to enlist is because Israel recognizes sometimes it could be uh, conflict of, of interest. If they have, family, they have family in other countries surrounding Israel, it's not a good idea to make them join IDF, and they can choose other ways to contribute to Israel. They can do national service. They can go work in... Um, as firefighters, they can go work in the police, they can go work or serve um, in uh, hospitals and so on. They can choose other ways to contribute to Israel. And if they do, they get all the benefits of soldiers who finish their army service as well. So that's important to say. We have most of our minorities are Muslim Arabs, so around 20% of the population. We also have um, Christian Arabs, non-Arab Christians. We have Baha'is, which is a Persian religion. Um, that no longer exist in Iran today. They're a very small minority. We have um, Bedouin and, and Druze and Cherkessian. We have a lot of like these small minorities, which we won't really go into detail about their religion and what their tenets are. We have all these like small um, groups inside Israel, and Israel really tries to make sure that even though Israel is a Jewish state, um, that it's a home for them as well. Um, all citizens have these exact same rights. Uh, we have laws that help minorities reach um, better positions um, in um, different workplaces, have uh, slots open for them in universities and colleges, for example. Um, we have specialized education for them and help if they need it. And we have things like national service where they can really choose to contribute if they want to. They are not forced to. National service is not a mandatory replacement for the army if you don't have to serve, but you can choose to do so and contribute and feel that you're part of Israel, and even if you don't agree with the fighting, and feel that this is a home for you as well. And it has been a huge success. For example, if we take the case of the Christian Arabs, there are around 100, 150 people who enlist every year to the IDF, but a very large number do national service, and this number has been growing exponentially in the past four years. It's really been rising by 20, 30% or more every year. And all of that has to do with the way it is communicated to the, that group. Um, we're talking about um, helping them see that there's benefit for them as well, that Israel recognizes their service and wants to help them be part of the community and help them feel that this is their home as well. And it's really been paying dividends in that aspect that where they, um, in, the, in the past when Israel was just a new state, they were really, really against doing, um, being part of the military, doing things for Israel's state. And today you can really see that more people are warming up to this idea and feeling that this is something they want to do. And it's great to see that we're able to do this. It's not to say that we're perfect and there's a lot of, always a lot of conflict and it's difficult with minorities and Israel being both a Jewish and democratic state always creates tension, um, but we are trying our best. Um. Mm -hmm. No. National service does not have to go through it, just mm -hmm. army service. National service is outside of the military. You don't wear a uniform. Um, you can do something else entirely. Um, so we really try to have this religious diversity in Israel and accept everyone. This is an example of a kindergarten where you have um, Jewish and Muslim teachers, and you have kids from different ethnicities living, um, st um, studying together. We have... Um, dual um, language kindergartens, for example, in schools where you learn, um, you study in both languages. You, um, Arabic is a mandatory subject as well in Israel, um, in the public education system, and it's also one of our official languages. Both of the two official languages in Israel are Hebrew and Arabic, and it's something that everyone studies. We 
feel this um, shared connection with everyone. And I think the best place to highlight it is in Haifa. Haifa is a really diverse city. It's very multi-ethnic. You have a lot of different people living side by side. And it really culminates around Christmas in the holiday of holidays where for a month we all come together and put all the religious symbols one next to each other and just celebrate. You can celebrate Christmas and Ramadan and Hanukkah all together and just enjoy being there. And it's really an amazing thing to see. If you've never been there around Christmas, you really, really should. It is spectacular. Um, that's a lot about uh, diversity. We're kind of running short on time. Um, so, uh, no, it's the belly, sorry, the okay. so, um, so we're just going to jump a lot of ahead and talk about the last thing um, about Israel. So we um, talked a little bit about um, like how Israel looks on the inside, and we want to talk a little bit about what Israel on the outside. And we talk about us coming here, for example, and being emissaries and creating this living bridge. And we said a word about Israel feeling responsible for the world. And um, one of the biggest Jewish teachings is um, tikkun olam, fixing or healing the world. And it's something that Israel has really incorporated into its government and its society and its mindset that we have this shared responsibility for the world and making it better. Um, Israel really does its best to help and give um, relief in any places where natural disasters occurred, for example. Whether it was flooding in Houston um, last year, Israel was there. We still have psychiatrists, um, psychologists working there with people with PTSD after they lost their homes. And we have people who are helping in Texas and people who are helping in Mexico. Everywhere there's someone that people may need help, Israel is, has this mentality of first feet on the ground. We send search and rescue teams, and we send um, medical aid, and we send psychological aid. Whatever we can do to help and really feel this. And sometimes even with people that we have political dis disagreement with, um, um, there's a program called Save a Child's Heart, where um, there are places in the world where you can't have open heart surgery because you don't have the medical expertise or the medical equipment needed. Um, and Israel sends um, in secrecy doctors to countries where they can't go legally because of um, political issues, and they go there anonymously with no Israeli markings or identity, and go and perform surgery on kids where if their identity would be known, they might be at risk of themselves, and go back um, we work in Africa, and we work in different Arab countries um, without saying specific names, and we work in Asia and in Europe and the Americas. We really try to um, feel that we are contributing somewhat and we're giving back to the world. It's really something that's been it's inherent in every Israeli and in Israel as a country, mm -hmm. specifically after the Second World War when we feel Israel is a place for everyone, to every Jewish per uh, person who suffered or um, Israel has been a refugee place for a long time so real feel this is our responsibility back to the world mm -hmm. so we can help as well we have a great video that we won't show because of time but um, in the Syrian civil war um, which has been raging on for the past six years Israel has been accepting daily refugees coming into Israel and treating them giving medical care and sending them um, health um, and medicine and food and, and toys for their kids and anything they can so they can have somewhat of a life um, in Syria. And we do this all anonymously. Um, if you see videos of it, their faces are always blurred. There's no names, there's no recordings of this so that they won't be persecuted for receiving treatment in Israel because we're not on friendly terms with Syria. Um, so we really try our best um, to do this. And it was important for us to end this uh, lecture with that small tidbit because it's our connection and us being here as part of our chance to give something back, but also to learn and make Israel better for learning what you have to say and what you have to feel and making Israel society better through that. So if anyone has any questions about this lecture, you know, it was a bit rushed. Uh, there's a lot to say, but please, anything you have to ask or you want to comment, we'd love to. Yes. Hmm. That's a great question. <laughs> um. So uh, the way it works, it's always a two-sided program. You go for a year or two, and then you come back, and you're expected to take part in Israeli society and do something with what you've learned. And everyone decides to do it differently. Personally, I really hope to go into the Ministry of Education and work on that and work on the Israeli um, um, policy of what we teach in schools and how we view things, how we view religion, how we view ethnicity, talk about how we teach. And that's like my goal for the future. But we also hope to... Um, be part of this program of the Shlichut, the Emissary Program, and help bring people and help um, take people back. One of the biggest things that um, Israel is still learning is um, 
lots of um, streams of Judaism have um, become uh, really, most Jews um, in the United States, for example, are Reformed Jews, and the streams of Judaism haven't arrived in Israel yet, and it's something that's very important for us to develop and make uh, an open discussion about and really help promote it in Israel. So we hope to do that as well. So we have uh, exciting things moving forward, which is nice. We hope exactly. so. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Meat for breakfast, we haven't adjusted to that yet, but maybe yet. pancakes. Pancakes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? We need to go bring back some stuff. Yeah. So. We need to teach them how to eat meat for breakfast. Yeah. So it's going to take a lot of time. It's urgent, yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank we you. really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. There's just so much for these people to say. Um, we've, we've had several generations of these emissaries here. Um, we had Shyam Mayana at least once and they gave us a talk right before our group went to Israel. You know, a big group from here went with Rabbi Spitzer to Israel two years ago. And then we had the generation before them helping us market the idea of taking the trip to Israel. So these are important characters in our community. Thank you. And uh, Ed and I are going to take them to Taggart's after after church, so I don't know whether they eat meat or not, or maybe it'll be too late, it won't be breakfast anymore, maybe it'll be lunch. Anyway, ice, definitely ice cream, yes.